verses 18 through 27. And this is what the word of God says. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Amen. Just as I've done throughout this series, I have uh, chosen a title that I feel like uh, fits the the passage. And so today I'm going to talk from the thought, be not deceived, be not deceived. Um, There is no doubt, my brothers and sisters, there is no doubt that deception can be dangerous. Deception can be dangerous and it could even potentially be deadly. It could be. I'm reminded of how duck hunters use decoys. Uh, With the technology and innovation uh, being what it is today, modern decoys have gotten rather fancy. I don't know if we have any duck hunters in the house. I'm not familiar. Amen. Art says I'm one. Uh, I've never been, but, you know, I've heard about it. Uh, But obviously, apparently, there have been some advances in the way decoys are made as opposed to how they used to be. Uh, They're rather fancy today, I hear. Uh, The decoys today quack like ducks. They move like ducks. They look like ducks, and they act like ducks. In fact, the ducks think that they are ducks. And the real ducks end up being dead because they can't determine what's real. Deception. Deception can be quite costly for the deceivee, 
for the one who's being deceived. It can cost that person dearly. Stories told of a guy who went to the doctor to get a checkup. Doctor did all the traditional things. Then he brought in a little cat. The cat sniffed the guy, rubbed up against the guy, jumped on the guy's lap, and then the cat left the room. Later, the man got a bill from the doctor. The bill was for $200. So the man, concerned about the bill, calls the doctor and inquires immediately uh, about the bill. Why, his question was, why is the bill $200? The doctor replied, well, $50 is for my checking you, and the other $150 is for the cat scan. <laughs> Deception can be quite costly for the deceive And so then we have to look at this from a spiritual perspective and how does it apply to us spiritually? What is the application for us spiritually? Here it is with so many challenging and competing voices inundating us today. It can be quite tricky avoiding spiritual deception. You have to be really vigilant. What can ultimately, uh, this, this, this deception can ultimately cause broken fellowship, can ultimately cause stunted growth. It can cause unrealized or aborted potential if we're not careful. Uh, that, that, that's, the, that's the threat uh, that we face when we talk about deception and the cost that it could potentially be to all of us. For the Christian, there are many roving decoys out there. And their job is to extricate us from the intimate experience of our faith. That is what Peter has in mind when he says, uh, be sober, be vigilant, because our adversary, the devil, moves about as a roaring, hungry lion, seeking who he may devour. The key word for me in that verse is may, because the may in that verse says it's up to me. I, I make the decision on whether or not I'm going to allow myself to be devoured. It's not up to the one who's seeking to devour. It's up to me and the, and, and the way I approach it and how vigilant and how sober I am. So then to avoid being deceived, one must remain vigilant at all times and alert. Our eyes must remain wide open at all times because there are schemes There are tricks, there's deception on every hand, and we have to be aware of that. Uh, This is John's message in this part of this first epistle. It's his message. 
Uh, you'll recall that before uh, he has said that one must avoid at all costs loving the world and all that is in the world. In fact, he didn't just tell you that as a general statement. He gave you a breakdown of exactly what it is that's in the world. He said this, the things that are in the world are the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Be careful about being sucked into those potential traps that will destroy your intimate fellowship with God. Now, he says, additionally, in order to avoid the death of intimate fellowship, be wary of at least two things, two additional things. There's a whole lot of things we need to be wary of and careful about. Here, he says, there are at least two other things. Number one, bad people. He's going to talk about it in a minute. And number two, bad doctrine. He says, be alert and wary of at least those two additional things. Number one, back up a little bit and remember, don't fall in love with the world because there's danger out there. He tells us what's out there, what, what the world is made up of. And then he says, be careful and wary of bad people and bad doctrine. Now, let me just give this disclaimer before we get into talking about bad people. Right? Listen, I want to say this. When, when, when John talks about bad people and when I reference bad people, I want to remind you that uh, the weapons of our warfare are not corner. We don't fight against flesh and blood but against principalities, against higher things. These bad people that John is going to reference, and I'm going to talk about in a minute, we have to remember that they are not, it's, it's not people that we're fighting, right? It, it, they're, 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 there's a force behind these, in particular these people that John's going to point out because he's going to call them something. We'll talk about it in a minute. So he says, number one, beware of bad people. It's in verses 18 through 20. Uh, verses 18 through 20. I want to just, let, let me read parts of it, and then as I read through, I'll talk about it. He says this in 18. First of all, he, he, uh, he calls them children, and he does it because he, he, he does this all throughout this epistle, and it's just a general statement. He's making this statement just to them, saying that he's calling them children because he's, he's generalizing, saying that all of them and all of us are children in the eyes of God. Not necessarily as it relates to our phase of spiritual maturity, but this is how he refers to them. Then he says this, it is the last hour. What does John mean by the last hour? What, what is he making reference to when he says it is the last hour? Here's what he's saying. John is calling the entire period between Jesus' ascension and his return the last hour. Here we have to understand that no one knows how long this period, including John, how long this period will last. But the phrase, the last the phrase, the last hour, implies a sense of urgency. We should have a sense of urgency in that Jesus may come at any moment. It was true in John's day. It's true in our day. Nobody knows when it's going to happen, but we do know that it's going to happen. We are 
Ever since Jesus ascended into heaven and they stood there watching him ascend into heaven, dismayed and discouraged and, and, and watching him, ever since that moment, we've been in the last hour. John simply says this is the last hour. I like what John Henry Newman says about this. He says, Newman says, in the Christian era, it's always five minutes to midnight. And we have to approach it that way that, Brother Kimmy, at any moment, Jesus Christ could come back. And because that is the case, we should have a sense of urgency because we are in the last hour. Jesus says this in Matthew 24. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. John simply says to them and to us, we should recognize that this could all be over at any moment. And because that's the case, we should live every moment of every day of of our lives as if that could happen. Because watch this, even if that does not happen, your number could still be called. So we ought to live every moment as if it is our last for Jesus Christ and his glory. Thomas Constable likens this time to a play and here's what constable says in the drama of human history all of john's readers including ourselves play a part in the last act we are in the last act of the play and you've got a role you've got a role in the play and we should seek god's uh, uh, uh wisdom and his will for us and what that is what what our role looks like and we should be about fulfilling it. But uh, that's not what John is necessarily getting at here. He, he points out that it's the last hour for another reason. It's important uh, to note that in this last hour, here's where John is going. There are some bad people with bad intentions. John has a name for them that only John uses. He calls them antichrists with an S, right? He references antichrist with no S, but then he calls the bad people antichrist with an S. So what's the difference? What, what, what's the distinction between the two? Antichrist with no S and a capital A, and Antichrist with an S and not necessarily a capital A. What's the difference? Well, Antichrist in our text in verse 18 is a reference to a powerful political figure who will emerge to lead Satan's strategy in the last days. It is a reference to uh, what will happen, what will happen in that es eschatological time that is to come. John is the only New Testament writer to use this word. And this is the first occurrence of the word Antichrist. He's the only one that uses it. 
although uh, he, he's the first one that uses it, uh, he does use it five times in his writings. It occurs here. It occurs later in, in, in his epistles. It occurs in, in, in John, in 2 John chapter 7. It occurs in uh, 1 John chapter 4 and here in 1 John chapter 2. And although this is the first occurrence of the word, John's readers were certainly aware of the concept because the concept of Antichrist is sprinkled throughout both Old and New Testament. And so they were aware of the concept, even though it's the first time hearing the word, right? They were aware in the, of the concept because it's discussed and it is sprinkled all throughout Old and New. And Daniel is there in chapter 11. It's talked about in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 13 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 2 John chapter 7 and in Revelation 12 and 13. It's there. The concept is there. In fact, Paul writes about the very concept in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 when he says this. He doesn't use the word, but this is what he's talking about. He says this. He says, let no man deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Talking about the Antichrist, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Here's what John is getting at. All of you talking to his readers are aware of this big A antichrist who has been discussed all throughout the teachings that you've heard, but I'm not talking about him. <laughs> That's what John says. I'm paraphrasing. That's my, my little take on it, right? John says, I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about something else because John is saying he's not come yet. And I'm saying to you today, he's not come yet. But... There's a but there. John says there are some little antichrists, <laughs> right, that are, that are roaming around. And so the difference is this. When we talk about antichrist with an S, here is John's point. This, it means this. These antichrists with an S uh, 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 have the spirit of antichrist. And it is anyone in opposition to Christ that has the goal of distracting and derailing Christians from pursuing Christ. And there are many of those being, being, being led by Satan himself, been a, have, having allowed themselves to be led by Satan himself. Not the person, the, it's the force behind the person. Isn't that right? And so then John says there are many of these in that day running around trying to cause confusion amongst the saints. Many of them running around. Many antichrists have come. That's what he says. The, it's the evil spirit that will characterize the final antichrist. That spirit was already working in the false teachers of John's day. Remember, we talked about these false teachers, uh, the, uh, 
from the very outset, the very beginning of his epistle, we talked about how he was dealing with some heresy that was being taught. Uh, the Gnostics were trying to convince the people of God that they needed a deeper uh, intellectual experience and they had the understanding, they had access to understanding that they didn't have and they uh, had their idea of who God was and who Jesus was and trying to convince the believers to follow along, and we'll see that to some degree it worked, but did it really? He's going to talk about it in a minute in verse 19, right? So he says this, many antichrists have already come. We need to watch that. We need to be careful and understand that. This letter is, does not only have application for John's day. Also for us. Then we transition to verse 19. And in verse 19, this is what he says. Verse 19. They went out from us. I want to stop right there. And I want to highlight two words. They and us. We're going to talk about in a minute who John, who that is. Who is they and who is us. Right? But he says this in 19. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. But if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So, question you should be asking <laughs> is who is they and who is us? Right? I know I heard you ask it, so I, I kind of prepared an answer for you. I anticipated that you would have that question. Who is they? They. Who is they? Uh, the they uh, could have either been the false teachers who had shown their true colors and agenda by, uh, by departing the churches which were made up of John's readers. It could have been those folks who revealed their true motives, intentions, and colors and who was behind the scenes in their lives in the first place. Could have been them. Or on the other hand, it also uh, could have been, they, they, uh, it could have been those uh, who had seceded from the apostolic churches of Jerusalem and Judea uh, from the beginning, from the outset, who was who, those who were with them uh, from the beginning, uh, who were with the apostles, could have been them who left. Either way, their true identity had been revealed as Antichrist with an S. Their true identity had been revealed. Uh, that's who the they are. People whose identity had been revealed. Be careful because we're going to talk about that in just a minute as it relates to, uh, is it talking about uh, believers who no longer are? <laughs> we'll talk about that. Hopefully that's not what you think. We'll talk, we'll deal with that in a minute. It's talking about those who appeared one way but really weren't, and then the covers were pulled off to, to reveal who they really were anyway. That's who, that's who they are, right? Stay with me. And then, so then, next question is, who is the us? If we know who the they are, who's the us? Us, then, is either uh, an apostolic reference to the original apostles who were doing the work of God, or it is a reference to the readers of this letter who made up the local body of believers that John is writing to. One thing we do know is that this they and us is not a reference to church members leaving to join a different church. 
uh, we've probably been guilty of using that in that context before, right? It's not that, especially if they're leaving to join another Christian church, right? It could, that, we, we, we can't use it for that. It's not that. As long as that other church is sound biblically, biblically and it is a Christian, is not a reference to that. Nor is it a statement against the doctrine of perseverance. So we need to understand that as well because this is not a statement against that doctrine. The doctrine of perseverance is this, according to the Westminster Confession, is this. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. This is the doctrine of perseverance. So simply put, it means this. Uh, if you've been legitimately, sincerely, and truly saved by grace, nothing can take that away from you. So this is not a reference saying that there were some in the church that were saved, but they left because now they're not saved. And we know they're not saved anymore because they left. That's not, that's a false reading of what John is saying in 19. Rather, John is saying this, they were never saved. And when they left, that was proof. <laughs> and it does not mean that they just left the church to go to another one. It means that they left apparently the faith, but really they weren't, they were never a part of the faith. Right? That's what John is doing with this. And so he says that in 19. Uh, I like uh, what S. Lewis Johnson says about this. He describes it this way. It is uh, talking about perseverance, the perseverance, the doctrine of perseverance. It is, so it's important for us to get this right because we need to know this because it will strengthen our faith and our resolve in our foundation in, in our walk with God. Here's what Johnson says about perseverance. It is the continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of the divine grace that is begun in the heart through the spirit is continued and brought to completion. That's what it is. I'm going to read it again. It is that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer, perseverance, right? By which the work of the divine grace that is begun in the heart through the spirit is continued and brought to completion. I like the way Paul puts it. Johnson does good, but Paul simplifies it. In Philippians 1.6, he says this, He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it or complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So here's what you have to, here's what you have to stand on. If you know in your heart that you belong to God, you're part of his family, you've given your life to him, you have to stand on this. God started something that day. That was, a, that, that was something that was, that was begun. You were born again. On that day, at that very moment, and if God started it, he's going to finish it. There is nothing. Paul says this. I love the way Paul writes. What shall separate me from the love of God? 
shall tribulation, shall life, nor or death, or anything present, or anything to come. Nothing shall be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, because uh, uh, he who hath begun a good work in me and in you. So verse 19 is not a reference to you. If you are truly a believer. I know it's true because look at what he does in the very next verse. The very next verse, verse 20, starts this way. But you. <laughs> right? It says that he's talking to people who, who, who are sincere believers who have not left the faith because they are committed to the cause of Christ. So he says, I'm not talking about you because you are different. So look at what 20 says. 20 says, but you as opposed to those in 19, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. He says, here's the difference. They went out from us, but they were never of us. But you, you are still here, and here is not necessarily a physical location. Here means in Christ. And here is what Paul, uh, here's what John says to give them confidence. He says, you have been anointed by the Holy One. What, 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 what does he mean by what is What does he mean by that? He means this, that those who remain, who are in the faith, and who can never be drawn away from the faith, who can never depart from the faith because of the doctrine of perseverance, those people, you and I, have been anointed by the Holy One. What does it mean? To anoint means to set apart for special service. And he says, the Holy One, Jesus, anointed you. How did he do it? He gave you the Holy Spirit. And it dwells, not it, let me, let me, Please help me to make sure that I clear that up. I don't want to leave there with that it hanging out there because it's not a it. It's a he. And he resides. Unlike the people of verse 19. The people of verse 20 has him, the Holy Spirit, dwelling on the inside. You've been anointed by the Holy One, the Holy Spirit. Here's what Jesus says about it in John chapter 14. One of the most beautiful chapters in all of Scripture, uh, and one of my favorites. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's what, that's, what, that's what John is making reference to in verse 20 when he says, you've been anointed by the Holy One. Jesus sent another helper for us. And then Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So John says, this is who we are. 
We're not like the 19 folks, right? We're not like that. We're, we're, there's, there's a but you for us and for the readers that were reading John's letter. Then in 20, he says this, you have all knowledge. You have all knowledge. That's what he says next. What does he mean? What does he mean you have all knowledge? Because certainly this should have piqued the interest of the readers. Because remember, one of the claims of the Gnostics was that they had all knowledge. It was one of the things that tempted those who did end up going away, who never really were there in the first place. It drew them away, this all-knowledge idea. And so John says, no, they don't have all knowledge. You have all knowledge because dwelling on the inside of you is the one who gives and who has all knowledge. And if he is on the inside of you, then you have everything you need. You don't need to be seeking anything else higher than what he's already given you. Uh, Johnson says this about it, universal knowledge. This is what he says. This is what John is talking about, universal knowledge. Uh, they have a built-in spiritual instinct, a built-in spiritual power through the person of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, a built-in instinct and a built-in spiritual power that's built in. As soon as he took up residence, immediately you have everything you need for life, for godliness, to live this life. So avoid, be careful about seeking higher knowledge. John says, you, Christian, already has, it's not, so watch this, it's not that he's saying, and he'll get into this later, we'll talk about it, it's not that he's saying that you can't be taught anything. But what he is saying is be careful about what you what you're taught. Be careful about seeking to be like God, seeking to be equal with him, seeking not only to be equal with him, because remember uh, in Isaiah chapter 12, the reason why the account uh, is there of how Lucifer gets kicked out, it's because he wants to elevate of glory of heaven, that is. He wants to elevate himself to be not only equal with God, but higher than him. And any time we find ourselves falling for that temptation, We're headed for destruction. So John says, you already have everything you need. All now, don't seek anything higher than what God of bad people, antichrist with an S. Because antichrist without an S is yet to come, but the spirit is already present. Some of you encounter them on a daily basis. Now, don't leave here and start going out calling people. The preacher says, Sunday, you antichrist. Don't do that because it's, it's probably not going to end well. <laughs> I didn't say that. You're right. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we have to be aware and understand that there are forces moving 
among us that are being controlled by something higher than even themselves and something higher than even that they realize and recognize. And it was happening in John's day. It's happening now. John says the the Antichrist is yet to come. It'll come. He'll come uh, in the eschaton, in the perusia. He's not yet come, but there are spirits, little ones, that are moving about that we have to be aware of and watch out for. So he says, beware of bad people. Then he transitions and he says, not only bad people do you need to be on the lookout for, but you also need to beware of bad doctrine. Sometimes they go hand in hand together because oftentimes the bad people will purport and try to teach bad doctrine. But John breaks it out here. He says, be careful. He does tie it in the get together because he says that these false teachers were teaching false doctrine. He says, be aware of what this false doctrine is and what it looks like. Beware of false doctrine. It's in verses 21 through 23. Uh, 21 through 23, here's what it says. I want to read it for you again. I write to you not because you do not know the truth. You already know the truth is what he's saying, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. There were many lies circulating in John's day when he writes this letter. Who is the liar? That's the question. Relevant question, significant question. Who is the liar? How do you define the liar in the context that John is addressing? How do you, defi- how do you uncover and reveal the liar to be a liar? Well, he gives us the answer. He who denies that Jesus is the Christ. All heresies begin with the deity of Jesus Christ. All of them. All of them begin there. All of all the heresies that are opposed to Christianity have their genesis in Jesus and who he is. All of them start there. Uh, in fact, John Calvin says this about it. Since Christ is the sum of the gospel, heretics Heretics especially aim their arrows at him because Jesus is the sum of the gospel. And that is where the target is. Attack who Jesus is, the person of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the atonement of Jesus, the second coming of all of who, the breath of who Jesus is, the 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 the. The, the manhood of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, and all of those, the, both of those put together, attack that. That's what the Gnostics were doing. He who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Because, 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. On the other hand, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. The Gnostics were trying to separate the two out. Some were saying that God could not be human. 
There's no possible way that God could come in human form. So then there were others that were saying that Jesus was only a figment of their imagination, only a spirit. Jesus was not real and that he was only a figment. And so John uh, 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 addresses these heresies. And there were some that were saying uh, you could have the father, but you didn't need the son. John says, not so. Be careful and aware and beware of bad doctrine. I want to say this about that. It can be tempting to the intellect because Antichrist with an S will attempt to attack or to uh, engage the intellect. The intellect, if you're not careful, will get you in deep trouble because we have this this thing that's built in on the inside of us that we want to understand everything. But God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher than his ways. As far as the east is from the west are his ways from our ways. He is unsearchable. The Gnostics played on the desire that they had and sometimes the desire that we have to be intellectual. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with that word or, or being smart or having knowledge. You have to understand there are limits. And whenever that knowledge interferes with our understanding of who Jesus is, that he came, how he came, what he came to do, and he's coming again. Anytime that is challenged is bad doctrine. That he came, how he came. We, we know he came, right? We know he was born of a virgin. We know he came, as John said, to take, John says, behold, the Lamb of God that has come to take away the sin of the world. That's why he came. Then, as the disciples were standing there watching him ascend into heaven, saddened, uh, there was someone who stood by and said, why are you dismayed? The same way that he ascended, he'll return again. And so we need to know that he came, why he came, that he will come again. And anytime that's challenged, it's bad doctrine. And listen, it doesn't, all, of the, all of those things don't have to be challenged for it to be bad doctrine. It can just be one. So this was, the, this was how the Gnostics operated. They would select one area that they could attack. And they would hone in on that particular area. Let's attack the humanity of Jesus. We'll attack that. God can't be human. No way. Or let's attack the deity of Jesus. No possible way he could be God. 
And we'll hone in on that. Each sect of Gnostics had their area that they honed in on. And I'm simply saying to you, you may not have ever met a Gnostic. But you have encountered bad doctrine. You have to be careful and confident because watch this. You're not in danger because of the doctrine of perseverance. You're not in danger of losing your salvation. But you are in danger of losing your intimate fellowship with God. You're not a verse 19 believer. You are but you, verse 20 believer. And so because of that, you ought to be, John's going to deal with it in, in chapter 5, how to know that you're saved and be confident in that. You need to know that, but you do need to be aware that you can forfeit, as I talked about last week, that closer walk with thee. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to forfeit the closer walk with thee. So he deals with bad doctrine in verses 21 through 23. And then lastly, here's the question. How do I detect the deception and remain in fellowship? How do I? How do I detect the deception and remain in fellowship? It's in verses 24 through 27. How do I detect it? 24 says this. Here's how you do it. I'm going to break it down in a minute, but here's how you do it. Here's how you detect it, avoid it, and remain in fellowship. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. There's this word that's used throughout these final verses of this passage. This one word keeps coming up. This word abide. Abide is found five times in these four verses. So the idea is this. The way that you detect the deception, uh, sniff out the deception, get ahead of it, uncover it, and not only do that, but remain in intimate fellowship with God is one word, abide. It's all throughout these last four verses. It's five times. Abide, abide, abide. What does it mean? It means to remain. It means to make it a home, whatever it is. It means to live there, to dwell there, to take up residence in that place. And we're not talking about a physical location. We're talking about a place spiritually. That's what abide means. And John says the way that you avoid the deception and sniff it out and uncover it and then, uh, then as a result of that remain in fellowship and intimate uh, fellowship and relationship with God is to abide. It's all throughout this text. So in verse 24, again, he says, uh, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. So what does that mean? That's the first reference to abide. He says one way to avoid uh, deception, remain in close fellowship with God, is to let what you heard from the beginning dwell in you, live in you, remain in you, not be taken away from you. What is it a reference to? It is, I submit to you, a reference to the gospel. 
So he says to those who are reading his letter, who are aware of the gospel and what it is, it is the good news. It is the coming of Jesus. It is all of those things I just, named, I just called and named to you before. Why he came, how he came, what he came for. He's coming back again. All of that, they had already heard it, been, been preached to them. They had been taught it. They knew the gospel. The gospel was a central part of who they were. It was why they were a part of the church in the first place the gospel. It was the very first thing they heard that drew them to Christ. Somebody should have said amen because you heard the gospel. And maybe you were like me that when you heard it the first time, it didn't make any kind of sense. Now, I can say it like I really want to say it. It ain't make no sense at all. You might have been like that, that, but when you heard it, it it was a seed that was planted. The gospel, somebody, remember I told you last week that when we first, when when John was talking about little children, it it should take us back in our mind to that very first uh, encounter we had with Jesus when he came into our hearts and into our lives and we were blown away because we recognized and realized that uh, somehow, some way, our sins had been forgiven. And if you were like me, the list was long. I know all of y'all probably don't. Some of y'all just had one thing on the list. I know. Some of y'all didn't have anything on the list. But I'm just telling you, my list was long. Anybody here have a long list when you say, amen, somebody read, don't be ashamed. And when he came and he came into your heart, you were blown away that all of that could be forgiven. And not only that, but now you had a relationship now with God. And John says, abide in the gospel. It's the gospel story. Jesus Christ, our Lord, came to take away our sin. John says, I don't care how tempted you are intellectually to be drawn away by deception. Abide in what you heard from the beginning. The gospel, the good news. I'm saying to you in 2020, abide in the gospel. Then he says not only that, in 24 he says that, and then in 25 he seems to take a turn. He seems to throw something in there that doesn't really fit. It seems to be out of place. He seems to just lose his way and loses his train of thought, but I submit that that's not what's happening at all. It's just a reminder in 25 of something. Look at 25. And... This is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So, first thing John says is abide in the gospel. Then he says, seems to be out of place, but to me he's saying, not only abide in the gospel, also abide in the promises of God. God has made us a promise. The central promise that he's made us is... This, here's what Jesus says 
In John 14, Jesus says this in that very familiar, uh, beautiful passage in the first three verses. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you shall be also. It is the promise of eternal life in the presence of God. And John interrupts what he's writing in this letter to remind them that God has made all of us a promise and abide in that promise, live in that promise, dwell in that promise, remain in that promise that I have a place over in glory that Jesus has prepared for me. So no matter what happens to me now, I have the promise of eternal life. Then he moves on. He says, uh, abide in the gospel. Abide in his promise. Then 26 and 27. 26 says this, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Antichrist with an S. They are out there. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Number one, abide in the gospel. Number two, abide in his promise of eternal life. Then John says, there are folks out there trying to deceive you, but here's what you do. Abide in the Holy Spirit. Because he is abiding in you. That's what he says in 27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. I already told you earlier what that anointing is. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit. He says he is in you. You need to be in him. And if you abide in him as he abides in you, you can do all things through Christ which strengthens you. The Holy Spirit dwells deep down on the inside. And John says, don't you forget that. Abide in that. And if he is there, you have no need to be taught anything by anybody teaching bad doctrine. This is not, this is not John saying, don't be taught anything. This is John saying, don't be sucked in to bad teaching because everything you need for life and godliness the Holy Spirit that dwells on the inside of you has already given it to you abide is the key abide in the gospel abide in his promise and abide in the Holy Spirit that's what it says in 27 at the end of 27 right it says uh, just as it has taught you Abide in him. Abide is the key word. Stay in him. Dwell in him. Stick with what got you here. Let me see if I can say it another way. Dance with who brought you. Don't be switching dance partners when you get to the dance. Dance with the one that brought you, right? John says, remain and abide in what got you to where you are. Don't abandon God just because something sounds better. Don't abandon God just because something looks better. Don't abandon his promise 
thinking that you no longer have that promise because something sounds more uh, intriguing to the intellect. Don't abandon him. Stick with what got you here. I'm reminded of a story I heard recently at a funeral, and I think it applies. Story goes this way. There's an old man who decided to take a trip to visit family. It was about a four-hour journey, and he decided to take his brand-new horse that he had gotten named Grace. He mounts the horse and begins the journey, the long journey to visit family. Somewhere along the way, there's an incident. He encounters some trouble, and he is thrown from the horse and injures himself, laying on the ground, injured badly. Somehow, the horse, Grace, comes over to him and helps him somehow to get back up on the horse and continue his journey. As he approaches family, they look out and they notice him in the distance and they run to meet him. And as they're running to meet him, they recognize that something is wrong. And as they approach him, they, re they realize that what's wrong is he's got two broken legs and he's in severe pain. So, doing what family normally does, they offer to assist him to make it the rest of the way. Here's his response. Grace had brought me this far. And grace will take me on home. And I say that to simply say this. God's grace, God's mercy, God's promises, God's anointing that is given us by way of his Holy Spirit has brought us all this far. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to let that take me on in. I don't need any deception drawing me away from God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy that's brought us thus far. We pray, Lord God, that you would be with us that we're not tempted to be drawn away from your intimate fellowship. We know, Lord God, the enemy can't take us out of your arms. But we also know that he can cause us to have uh, difficult days as we lose intimate fellowship with you. So bless us not to do that, but to remain and to abide in you. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Listen, I want to um, just let you know that uh, we want to extend uh, a couple of different invitations. One is this.